Welcome to part two of Script to Screen's podcast on Spike Lee's Malcolm X, where Kenyatta, Mark, Derek, and I continue discussing our favorite scenes, who should be telling these histories on film, and we give our final thoughts on the movie. Remember, you can join the Boston Screenwriters Group on meetup.com and RSVP for an online event, peer-reviewing scripts, giving feedback on fellow writers' work while networking with them as well. We hope to see you then. Enjoy the podcast. What what are people like some of your favorite scenes in Malcolm X? Favorite scenes um the beginning of the scene in the barbershop that was just the funniest thing when he's um getting the relaxer put into his hair and he's not he's just sitting there thinking oh this is so easy like I don't understand people complain about it then it just gets hot hot hard and he's like rushing just to get that stuff out of his hair. Uh, to me, that was one of my favorite scenes. Again, when he before he goes to jail, same thing is happening, except all the water is turned off. I was, I was always trying to figure out why exactly was the water turned off. Like I never understood that part. I feel like that's just that's an important question. But yeah, those two scenes to me were my favorite ones. I love the scene. Um, and for for me, this is like where Malcolm becomes like a superhero. I mean, it, it, it it's when He's approached, he's having, um, I think it's ice cream with, with Betty and they say, Brother Johnson has been attacked. And they, um, Denzel, as Malcolm X is being told that this brother from the, the, the um, mosque has been attacked by police, he's at the police station. And there's this scene where people are questioning, like, who are you? You, you claim to be this person who's a leader what are you going to do about this? And he marches down to the police station and demands that he has access to see um, the condition of Brother Johnson. From there, they take him to the, the hospital. And then, of course, the scene um, ends with a police officer saying that's too much power for one man to have when he actually sends um, the brothers from the mosque in such a kind of orderly and regimented fashion marching away. It just shows that the command he had of the people in the mosque, as well as the respect the people had for him. And that's, I think, like the moment in the movie where he becomes like superhero Malcolm X, you want to call him that, the person who has kind of earned his stripes and he's, he's the person who's seen as a leader in the community. And, and for me, that's that's the, the most important or my favorite scene, I should say, of the movie. I, I, yeah, I agree with you. That was a very powerful scene. Um, I would say the scene where he's in prison and uh, he's learning for the first time when he when he's first being awakened, uh, when, when, you know, starting with the dictionary, and um, Barnes is schooling schooling um, young Malcolm, you know, from this is when he transforms from kind of like the, uh, I guess you would call it the hoodlum Malcolm, and he's right then that scene is pivotal in the sense that. Um, <clears throat> He's being transformed before our very eyes. It's kind of like a uh, caterpillar, you know, in a cocoon, and it and it's this butterfly, and then the butterfly uses wings to bust out the cocoon, and it flies off. So you so you see that transformation before our very eyes. Um, he's and Malcolm is just totally shocked, and um, and I also the whole prison part because there's a part where is darkness and 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 they ask him what his his name is. I guess his number. 
you know, and then they keep coming back because he refuses to, you know, to say what his number is. And the whole time you could kind of see the madness. So the whole prison section, it was just uh, very, very, um, that's one of my favorite parts. Yeah, mine too. Yeah, yeah. And I neglected to mention that that scene that ends with the police officer saying it's too much power for one man to have. Spike Lee actually altered that. It was that was an actual line said by a police officer when this event happened, um, and he, Spike Lee omitted surprisingly. I'm shocked he omitted this word. He omitted the word black. In other words, it's too much power for one black man to have. I don't know why he omitted that, um, but he did. I'd like to ask him that question why he did that. Yeah, all those are all those are great scenes, especially. Uh, uh, Especially like like the the march when he's uh, he's he's pleading he's leading the march to the police station and the hospital because his uh, fellow Muslim brother is uh, has been attacked by the police that that is a, a very powerful scene that just shows off that transformation that uh, Malcolm X has uh, has gone through up to this point in his life. But uh, I know I said in the last one I love a good stump speech and wow uh, you get so many of them in this one that there's it's almost impossible to choose. Uh, Denzel Washington are recreating. Uh, the speeches, the firebrand speeches that he made to uh, both anywhere from uh, his his congregation to uh, Harvard uh, to a Harvard lecture hall, uh, and just the different ways that he talked to a, uh, a black audience and a white audience, uh, the, the the very man, the various mannerisms that he adopted between the two, it's fascinating. But uh, probably my my favorite, uh, you know, in terms of uh, just uh, acting, uh, is when he leaves the nation of Islam. Uh, his speech and uh, it's uh, it, 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 uh, there's really good there's really good, like a great acting thing that, that Denzel does that he's he's uh, stammering over his words like what I'm doing right now like uh, but previously he was just passionate and uh, very just confident in every single word but in this instance uh, he's stumbling he's stumbling over some of his words he's unsure of uh, the tone that he's going for he's reading off of cute uh, index cards. For it. So you're seeing that he, this is sort of the final, sort of beginning of the final transformation for Malcolm X, uh, becoming much more introspective, and uh, understanding like uh, uh, that the, his faith really, uh, his faith is not defined by just Elijah Muhammad. It's defined by like what he can find for himself, and that I think that's the beginning of that. That is, you know, sort of, sort of the third act. Uh, when we get into uh, both the movie and uh, Malcolm's life, that's just uh, astounding. And again, uh, just an astounding performance, astounding acting choices all throughout. And that goes, that's a, that's a testament to the film because there's so many, like, you could ask what your favorite scene is, but once you pick one, then you start thinking about another one. It's like, oh, is that my favorite? There's so many great scenes. So it's kind of hard to, you know, pinpoint exactly your favorite one, because at any given time, you'll ask that, you can ask that same question differently, you know, because there's so many uh, powerful scenes. Oh, I like the opening scene, just because you see, like you see the introduction of Malcolm X that you've never seen him before. Like this is like the beginning stage. And when you see him, you're just like, oh, okay. So this guy's different than what you've been learning about in school, what you've been reading about in books and magazines. And then this guy appears, gets the relaxer in his hair. And like, this is like a real serious guy, but he isn't. I don't know. It's just, to me, I guess that scene just captivated me. And then just to kind of, 
bring it up to current events is that um, we have all these uh, uh, black citizens being killed by police. Okay, what do they say? They call them all, they were thugs and all this, like Mike Brown, it's like, they made it sound like, first of all, they, you know, if teenagers, they refer to black males who are teenagers as grown ass men, you know, um, they don't refer to them as boys or, or you know, children. Like, you know, even Tamir Rice was 12 years old. They refused to refer to him as a kid. He wasn't, he wasn't even uh, 13, you know, but it, it, I think they did to, um, what's his name, um, Sherman, um, the, the football player, what's his name? Who played for the uh, the the um, was it the Seahawks? See, I'm not a Richard football Sherman. Person. Yeah, Richard. Yeah, Sherman. yeah. They were calling him a thug, so it's like, um, so so so. I think sometimes society they um, they kind of dehumanize, you know, uh, black males sometimes, and may seem like there's no redeeming qualities. But here you have Malcolm X, pretty much. You see. Like you said, a transformation, an evolution, you know. So it, it's showing that okay, somebody makes mistakes in life, but you can learn from your mistakes. Especially, you know, um, you could be a, you could be pretty much a product of your environment, but you could still, once you're shown a different way, you can make different choices. So I think overall. That is what this movie's about. It's like, okay, think about his father's killed mysteriously. You know, a lot of people suspect it was the KKK. Okay. The mother was um, put into uh, a mental institution. Okay. And then he was going to foster homes and so on and so forth. His family split up. So it was a very uh, tragic situation. And then, you know, he's this. Um, country bumpkin who comes to the city and he's thrown into this environment where you know with thieves pimps gangsters whatever and he becomes a product of that environment is when he goes to prison he's shown something else you get what i'm saying he, he's shown something else and he's able to say oh it transformed into evolved into something else something more positive and you know what have you so so i think that is a very important lesson in its own right you mentioned you know what happened in terms of his family father being killed mother being institutionalized family being broken up put into foster care um but it's important also to note that he was on a certain trajectory before that remember he he was someone who was seen as a, a good student right he even once he's thrown into this kind of foster environment he's still a good student um best grades in the class supposedly uh voted um student body president even though he's the only black person there and um so even at that time um these whites regarded him as somebody worthy of respect his teachers who who um saw his grades except for the one who, who suggested he, he not become a lawyer, but somehow, some way he was earning, you know, the marks and the grades of a good student. 
uh, and earn the respect, um, at least to lead um, in terms of student government um, with his classmates and was kind of thrown off that track. He was on a certain trajectory of being a successful uh, person. You don't think of people who are student body presidents who get good grades as falling into the, the life that Malcolm X did. And it was because of the conditions around him that they kind of steered him, as you suggested, you know, down this path. And it's almost like uh, coming into contact with Baines in prison brought him back to what would, would have been his natural progression, uh, being someone who was able to um, use his skills of uh, oratorical skills to to uh, persuade people and to lead people. So he's like he's back on track now. Yeah, and you hear horror stories um, from black students. I know personally. I've experienced this as well, where you have a teacher, um, which you don't expect the teacher to do this. And I, I tell people all the time that, you know, um, when it comes to white supremacy, you always look at the KKK. And if you think about it, if they took off their hoods, who are they? They're gonna be maybe a police officer's firemen. They might be doctors, they might be lawyers, they might be school teachers. You know what I'm saying? So, um, so not school teachers. <laughs> I, I'm not saying all teachers. No, 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 no. I mean, all teachers are bad. No, 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 no. I'm messing with you because I, I work in education, and I'll let you know. I, you're not far off. I'm sure there's some people who who wear hoods. Uh, I'll put it that way. Yes. Yeah, I, I could. You know, I'm not gonna. I, I do have a story, but I'm not gonna share that right now. But. Um, I guess into into um, imagine if you know you're a teacher, you know you're a student, and your teacher tells you what his uh, Malcolm uh, Malcolm Little at the time, his teacher told him, despite all your good grades and you kind of excelling academically, you know um, you can't be a lawyer, you can't be this, you know, just settle down and you know. And then, like, um, throughout school, you know, I've heard Black students say, oh, a teacher told me, uh, you know, um, I'm not going to be anything. I could only hope for a job at McDonald's. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So, 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 so if you, if you think about nature versus nurture, you know, there's like, this is the nurture part where, you know, even though it doesn't matter, what you did academically, how he was seen, all right? So I just want to point that out. Yeah, it certainly still continues today in terms of the discourage, discouragement uh, of certain students, um, often because of what they look like or where they happen to come from. There's this sense that these students can't be this or can't be that. And these determinations are made by people who a lot of children believe to be the authority, to the, to the person in front of the class who's got the, the mastery of the content and, and has done this for X number of years and knows what it looks like to be someone who's successful. And they're saying, I can't do this. And on some level, the students internalize that. Um, it's extremely dangerous for a person who has access to the minds of children for six hours a day uh, to have these these negative feelings about a certain segment of the population because they can, you know, engage in what's called the Pygmalion effect. They can make, you know, what they expect uh, into a reality, right? They have low expectations for for a student. They can make that student over time 
uh, be an underachiever and they won't even realize, it. especially if they're at a younger age, they won't recognize what the person in front of the classroom is actually doing to them, what they're intending to do to them. So one of the uh, production uh, backstories that was uh, going around right when this was uh, starting to get made and everything was that uh, uh, Norman Jewison was going to be helming this uh, originally, uh, you know, uh, in the heat of the night, uh, 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 director at the for Justice for All, uh, you know, yeah, various, you know, uh, very good filmmaker, uh, very, mostly socially aware, uh, especially as a uh, probably one of the more socially aware in Hollywood at that time for big name directors, but then uh, Spike Lee locally came out and, and just uh, laid it out that uh, he's not black. Uh, and that was, and that was of course, that became a really big deal. And then, but eventually Jewison did step down and uh, of course Ali took over from there, but it is, uh, it, it's a story, it's a, something that has carried on all the way to, to now that uh, who gets to tell these stories and, uh, who really has the agency to do so, uh, uh, who should be, uh, rather is probably a better way to put it, uh, who should be telling these stories and who should be like relating these, um, uh, the story of the Black Liberation Movement, civil rights, uh, everything else uh, from that, uh, uh, like who should be like, who should take the reins and who should be like uh, telling these stories. Uh, and it's, uh, it's interesting that uh, uh, sort of this was the first instance when that was like put out into the open that uh, uh, that there really should be a, a black filmmaker that, uh, that tells the story of Malcolm X rather than uh, you know fairly well regarded uh, a white filmmaker uh, in terms of Norman Jewison. And I, I, I do agree with that. Just like Schindler's List, I'm pretty sure um, there are directors out there that could have done a good job with Schindler's List, even though they're not Jewish, but uh, Steven Spielberg, I I thought it was a good idea for him to do, do it. You know, he's Jewish, and and people don't understand. Uh, yeah, sure, other people. That's not like whatever the film is, whatever culture that film is. Uh, who are you know other directors who are not part of that culture, and that's just that's to say they won't, they can't do a good job, so on and so forth. But I just think it's a good job, kind of like Martin Scorsese. He does, he's Italian. He does like a lot of things um his movies filled with a lot of american italian italian like cultural things that's going on in his films uh which i think is I think is fine um but at the same time like if we want to talk about diversity diversity is more than just putting a token black black person in the film diversity is also um black folks have an opportunity to do films that are related to our history and our uh, culture. Same thing if you're Korean or you're Chinese or whatever background you are, them doing what's relevant, culturally relevant to the, the, their lives, historically relevant to their lives. You know, so to me, that's more diversity than just taking a film as like, oh, I'm gonna put a gay person and I'm gonna put a black person in it. I'm gonna put a trans person in it. You know, all this kind of stuff. Yeah, all that's all fine and dandy and everything. That, all that's fine, but you can't say, you know, um, that's what diversity is. I think it's much more than that. Like, let's say there's a, a film about women, women's issues. You should have a woman director, you know? So uh, that's just my opinion. and. Um, yeah. 
yes, yeah, certainly the people who are of that group should be able to tell their story and you'll hopefully pick someone to helm the movie who's of the group also has a certain sensitivity about it uh, and a certain knowledge and a connection to the community. You know, you'd hate to see someone, you know, saying now making her directorial debut uh, in, <laughs> so, I'm sorry, I can't say it. Now making her directorial debut uh, for this new reboot of Malcolm X is Candace Owens, right? You don't, you don't want, <laughs> so you don't want that. Yes, yeah, certainly somebody who is you know, of the group, but sensitivity has got to be a piece of it too. Um, certainly with, with biopics, there's got to be a certain degree of vetting, I think as well who's going to be helming it. I guess you could have a first time director doing it, but it's got to be someone who usually uh, has something about their, their character, their, their person that says they're going to treat this in the way it should be treated. Right. Um, so yeah, I, I'm happy uh, Norman Jewison did not do Malcolm X, but it's not simply because he's, he's not black, but it's, it, it's, it's that he's not black. And I don't think he has the connection, right? You can say he did in the heat of the night. Yeah. Great. Fine, he, he did that. There's a certain bit, bit of um, uh, racial politics with that. It's something that's totally different than uh, tackling the story of Malcolm X with all the complexities um, and the various uh, sensitive factions that are involved in it. Um, I would imagine that if Norman Jewison was given the ability to make the movie, either he would have been given the initial Warner Brothers uh, I guess budget for it, or if they ended up sabotaging, he'd say, "Oh, oh well, I was sabotaged. I'm going to have you know an hour long movie, hour, hour and fifteen minute long movie instead of a you know two and a half hour long epic. And I'll cut these scenes up, cut that scene out. I'll cut corners here and there." Spike Lee refused to cut corners because he has a connection to the story and the people. He knows that he had, he knew that he had to do uh, the story and the person justice. Yeah, I, I think I think that just goes to show that, uh, you know, uh, yes, it, uh, you know, there should be, you know, it's not just diversity, you know, in front of the camera, it should be diversity behind the camera as well. You know, the, the film, there should definitely be filmmakers that have a connection to the material. And now uh, we said, I may have mentioned uh, the last one with Judas and the Black Messiah, you know, there, uh, with certain figures, you need to have a certain respect uh, for uh, what they went through and what they represented. And if you don't have that, then why are you telling the story? Um, if you're just telling it just to, you know, get the story out there, you know, okay, but uh, if there's no drive, there's no real, uh, there's no real tact that you're taking to this story, then uh, you have to ask, like, why you, why do you want to tell the story of, uh, of Malcolm X or uh, Fred Hampton, uh, what have you. Uh, so if you are interested in, you know, to as sort of advice to uh, screenwriters, uh, you should not limit yourself like to, you know, but at the same time, do your research, like uh, uh, hire consultants, uh, make sure that uh, the history that you're depicting is respectful and sensitive to uh, the time and the, and the historical figures that you're trying to represent. Thing that I often wonder about with this movie was like, this was a two and a half hour film. Um, always wonder like how much of it ended up on the um, cutting room and the editor's floor, like how much was left out, especially with the budget that he was given, like was there anything that he just had to take out of film just because he didn't seem like it went well with the story or is there like extra footage? I mean, um, King Yada, you said you have it on Blu-ray, is there any like bonus features that come with the film? Um, actually, I never paid attention to the, the the uh, additional, you know, um, 
stuff that comes with the board. I just watched the, the film, but I could take a look at it. Um, yeah, I never, to be honest, I can't answer that question. I have to go back and look on there, but I never, I never, very rarely do I look at the, you know, additional uh, bells and whistles that come with it. every once in a while I, I may, but um, I'll, I'll check it out though and see what, you know, see what's going on. I mean, because I feel like that's what they do with all that extra budget. Like, they just make as much as they want and sum it down to an hour, two-hour film and then leave the rest somewhere else. Like, I remember hearing about Martin Scorsese's um, Wolf of Wall Street being over 20 hours with the footage. So it just makes me wonder if Spike Lee ever had anything such as that just lying around. Like, here's some extra stuff from school days. Here's some extra stuff from... um, do the right thing. Here's some extra stuff from Oh Better Blues. Like, I think it would just be really interesting to see stuff like that as well. But like, I don't know, I'm just hoping that with his budget, he was able to have something like that on the side, at least. Like, actually just go into the editor's room and say, I don't want that, I don't want that, I don't want that, I want this, I want this, I want this. But I mean, like, it would just be nice to see all that extra stuff lying around if it's there. I guess, um, like last podcast, I'm going to recommend a book. Uh, which is the autobiography of Malcolm X, uh, documentary, Who Killed Malcolm X. Um, also, let's, let me point out, I just want to kind of um, something that Mark said about, um, excuse me, I'm sorry, about um, you know, there's there's a need for more biopics like uh, films like this of its caliber. Um, Donald Glover uh, was trying to do the Haitian Revolution. He's been trying for multiple years. So, um, <clears throat> and we see these kind of projects are very hard to finance. And I would like to see more collaboration uh, that Spike Lee had with uh, finishing off finishing the. Um, the funding for Malcolm X. And with that said, and, and this kind of goes and ties into what Derek just said, uh, get on a bus. I have to recommend get on a bus only because that was fully financed um, by Black celebrities. And if we, if we want more films of this caliber, it, ha- it would have to come because obviously the uh, the mainstream, you know, film industry, um, the the not it hesitant to finance or greenlight these kind of projects. So um, and, and and a lot of people want to see these films, these kind of films made. So uh, you know, you just have to kind of like persevere, and uh, people have to collaborate, man. Um, and one thing, maybe Mark could, uh, I don't know if you heard this, Mark, or anybody else, but for a very long time, um, and there's another uh, book I'll recommend, Assassination of Malcolm X. Um, for a long time, like it, just, I just want to point out real quick, uh, Who Killed Malcolm X, that's on Netflix, by the way, so I didn't mention that before, so but if you watch that film, it's like people are trying to say, okay, who was responsible for his death? And recently, 
as of I think last week or so, um, there was kind of like a um, a confession. Somebody was on their deathbed, and it, it came out that the CIA, FBI, what, what have you. Well, remember J. Edgar Hoover. He reigned for 47 years as the head of FBI. And you have COINTELPRO and everything like that. And we already see what happened with uh, Fred Hampton. Um, and then it was found out recently about Martin Luther King uh, Jr. He was assassinated and the CIA was responsible. Now that's starting to come up. Have you heard that, Mark, about that, um, that deathbed confession? Right, a New York police officer actually had a letter that he'd written confessing that he'd been in co connection with the uh, federal government and the New York Police Department uh, to allow this to happen. And, and one way they did that was by removing the bodyguards of Malcolm X from um, the venue, the Audubon Ballroom, where he was killed. Um, that's one part of it. And I think that they're, they're speculating there might be some involvement on the part of the, the actual killers as being members of uh, if not complete members of, of the FBI or CIA, um, people just on the payroll, um, much like um, we talked about last podcast with uh, uh, William O'Neill, right? So somebody who's you know being paid off to commit a, a task on behalf of the federal government if they're not members of it um, by by profession. And so just for this episode of the podcast, you know we have to throw out one night in Miami and also. Judas the Black Messiah. So um, that's my final word. And you stole my thunder. I had both those. I had <laughs> Who Killed Malcolm X? And I had to read, you know, autobiographies, my two recommendations um, tying in with this film. Um, yeah, I guess the final thought was this movie, I remember when it was being made, I remember all the buzz around it. I remember the pressure on Spike Lee. I remember reading about the stress he was under because you know there was some um I, I guess concern about whether or not at the time uh there'd be some static from the nation of islam and, and, and there'd be some static from folks who knew him again this is somebody who you know had contemporaries who were still living who could talk about you know whether or not this is an accurate portrayal or not if you're talking about making movies about people like from a bygone era like uh, Spielberg made the Lincoln movie. There's nobody around in from Abraham Lincoln's time to talk about whether or not this is how they experienced it. But uh, Malcolm X was a character who, a person who um, was seen as controversial in the country, um, within the, the nation of Islam in the, and also the black community. Um, we didn't, didn't, did not get into um, the way in which even some of the black community didn't, didn't you know, appreciate Malcolm X for a number of reasons. Um, the fact that he was uh, a Muslim and uh, much of the black community was was Christian. So there was some kind of reluctance on, on the part of that. Spike Lee did cover that in the movie as well. Some of the reluctance on, on Christians adopting his philosophy. But final thought about this movie is, this is Spike Lee's crowning achievement in my opinion. Um, as was stated by, by Jeff, one of the best uh, biographies committed to film uh, if you've not seen it, certainly check it out. Um, I'm just hoping for, for, for more biopics to be of this or close to this caliber, although that, that's a, uh, a lofty expectation or desire. Um, but I just 
revisit this movie every so often because it is so powerful and it evokes you know certain feelings of, of what I was thinking about that time as well as you know what uh, the power of trans transformation is and being somebody who's in education I've got to keep that at the forefront that you can uh, impact someone's transformation uh, for good or the other direction as well. Yeah, I'll, yeah, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll recommend a couple of uh, documentaries uh, that are available. Uh, it's not, uh, what is it? It's, uh, oh, I forgot the director's name, but uh, I Am Not Your Negro. Uh, the, uh, <clears throat> the, I think it was recommended by Mark uh, way, way back uh, in an earlier podcast, but I think it definitely uh, uh, works well with this one, with Malcolm X as well. <clears throat> Excuse me. But, uh, and, um, Eva DuVernay's 13th, we were kind of talking about uh, um, what uh, the prison system does for inmates and, and everything. And you can see the historical context behind that. And uh, she delves into that. Uh, very well. yep. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Uh, Raul Peck's uh, I Am Not Your Negro. Additionally, as a book recommendation, I recommend James Baldwin's Another Country, a fiery work of beautiful poise and passionate insight into race in America. A final word, yeah, I'll reiterate, yeah, this is one of the finest uh, biopics, historical dramas, what have you, that has been committed to film. It shows uh, Malcolm X, uh, Malcolm Little to Malcolm X in stark relief. It shows his viewpoints at every single turn and every single stage of his life and um, just lays it out there. Uh, it's up to the audience to uh, empathize or not empathize with him. That, that's, you're free to do so. But I think in all total, it shows the complete picture of this very important figure in, in, in American history and even just the worldwide history. Um, one, of the, <clears throat> one of the figures that just uh, said it how it was and uh, has been proven right, <laughs> unfortunately, time and time again. Um, and someone that should not, someone whose words just continually echo and uh, thankfully now echo on uh, Sally Lloyd thanks to Spike Lee and Denzel Washington. Uh. I don't really have any recommendations for a film. Um, I remember mentioning a few podcasts ago that read the Malcolm X book and it's already been mentioned before. Never seen um, Who Killed Malcolm X. So I'm looking forward to watching that soon. Um, but as for a final thought, um, yeah, I feel like with this film and the situation that Spike Lee was placed in, I feel like he was just the very definition of perseverance, doing taking what he had and doing as much as he can with it. And then when they basically limited him, he went out and looked for it somewhere else and was able to get his job done and accomplish his goal of finishing this film, which is what was really important to him. So like I would say this, like do what's important to you, um, accomplish your goals and um, yeah, just persevere any chance you get, just keep going with it. Like no matter what happens, I know that's like the struggling thing with filmmaking is that sometimes you'll hit a dead end or you'll be halfway finished and then something else happens. So you have to like find a way around it, but yeah, just keep persevering until the project is done. Thank you as always for giving us a listen. We hope you enjoyed listening to the entire discussion in full. We hope that this encourages film lovers to give this great movie a much-needed rewatch. Feel free to leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts and other platforms. You can support this podcast in the Screenwriters Group with a monthly donation by clicking on the support button in Anchor.fm. You can find Kenyatta and I hosting the Boston Screenwriters Group on Meetup.com and on YouTube with our forum recordings. 
You can join us by RSVPing to a virtual peer-reviewing scripts meetup by using the link in the description. We wish you all the best in your writing and other life's pursuits. Continue on staying strong.